morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 12th, we are studying Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. In today's text, St. Paul gives a human example to show that the law has not annulled the Lord's promise, but the law has served as our guardian until now Christ has come to justify us and make us sons of God by faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be back. So we get started today. Pastor Heidi, talk to us about the epistle to the Galatians. What should we know about the epistle and the context leading up to our section today? Yeah, so the epistle to the Galatians, generally speaking, is dealing with an important question. You know, how is it that we are actually justified before God? Because... The Galatians in particular had given in to this um, idea that if you were, you know, you were begun by the gospel in that sense, but then you were perfected by what you did, like you completed it sort of thing. So that they went from the gospel back to what Paul calls the works of the law. And Paul is uh, speaking against that throughout the entire gospel. And in our you know, coming up to our reading t- today, he's focusing on, you know, how it is that we are actually justified, how it is that we have actually been made right with God. You know, is it by the works of the law or is it by hearing with faith? And Paul will make it very clear it is by hearing with faith. And now he's going to show us why that is the case. Because today he's really answering in a, a possible objection that could have been raised by everything that he said up to this point. Well, then, you know, what's the point of the law at all? Why did it come into place? Uh, why did God put it into place if we are saved by grace rather than by the law, right? Yeah, yeah that's good. That's good. So is, is Galatians your favorite epistle, Pastor Heidi? Because I know many Lutherans just love this epistle, and I'm curious if it's your favorite. Well, they're all good. <laughs> Such a diplomatic answer. It is a diplomatic answer. No, I mean, it the, It it does have some very wonderful things, and of course it has uh, It has some very memorable things that, you know, everyone should hold on to, but I don't know if I have a favorite, I'll put it that way. All right, all right, very good. <coughs> so some really key doctrine here that we have in the latter half of chapter 3, some pretty key passages, as you said, very memorable passages throughout this epistle, and some of them occur in this one. Uh, some also, also some passages in this section that are perhaps uh, available for abuse, if I can say it that way, sure. within the history of the Church that we get the opportunity to talk about today. So again, we are looking at Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediator, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That is the text for today, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. Pastor Heidi, Paul says he's starting today with a human example. Talk to us about the human example Paul brings up. Yeah, so the human example that Paul is beginning with is a legal will. And he's basically borrowing um, the imagery and the ideas from the, the secular realm and the, the wills, especially of Roman society, and he's using them to make a point about what it is that God is doing here. And his, major, his first major point, and I mean, he, he, he takes several different steps throughout this passage. We kind of have to break them down into individual parts here. But uh, his first major point is that even with this human will, um, and this is still true today, once a will has come into force, no one actually changes it. Um, because now the the will has to be carried out if we were to change the will after the fact then it's no longer a will right then it becomes something else um so i mean basically what he's saying is if that is true even of human wills even of secular realm you know in what we do today how much more true is it of god's will so to speak the will that he made with abraham right okay. sure okay so the the human will that is the the example similarities between what is Paul's talking about in his Roman context and our context today. We know how this works, that a will once made and once the person has died, you're not going to change that. That's not allowed. So Paul then takes that human example and applies it to what he wants to talk about with the law and the promise made to Abraham. So help us into how Paul applies this example. Mm -hmm. So basically, if we're using this idea of a will, he says that God established the will with Abraham. He put everything into force. He set forth the promises. This is what he was going to do. Once that came into force, nothing is going to change that. Okay. okay. And then, as he points out, 430 years afterward, so now we fast forward to Mount Sinai, what came into force then at Mount Sinai is not something that is going to completely take away what happened with Abraham. So he does set up a kind of contrast between the two here. 
Um, but what, what comes afterward is something different. And that's kind of his point here. The will was made with Abraham. The will is still in force. And that is that we are saved by faith. What came afterwards 430 years later is a kind of, I don't know how you want to say, um, an addendum at best. You know, it's just, it's something different. And Paul is going to talk about what makes it different throughout the, you know, through some of the rest of this passage. Okay, right? so so the, the primary point then of the human example is to label the promise made to Abraham as this will that mm -hmm. has been established and is not going to be broken. Correct. So that what comes 430 years later at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law to Moses cannot annul or change that promise, that will that God had ratified with Abraham 430 years earlier. That's the, that's the primary point of this human will. But you're also saying that there then are differences between what God did with Abraham and what he did on Mount Sinai in giving the law 430 years later. So there's a couple of, of things going on in Paul's argument all at once. Well, there's always a couple of things going on with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But Yeah, because he, he will make the point then, especially in the next section, which we'll get to, you know, why do we have the law at all? And it has a different purpose. And that's kind of his major point throughout the rest of the passage. You know, what is the purpose of the law? But the purpose of the law, even though he's going to make it clear, what it cannot be is to change the terms of Abraham's, the will with Abraham. Okay. Which is right. to, you know, save through your, through his offspring. Sort okay. Of thing. All right. So, so let's, let's talk about then those terms of the will that was made with Abraham that covenant, that promise that was ratified. Talk about the terms as Paul sets them out following verse 15. Yeah, I think I think well, the main thing that he focuses on now, um, he talks about the promises, and of course he says it just very generally. He will get to the actual promises themselves later on, which is that we are, you know, sons of God through faith, that we have been saved by faith, you know, by trusting in Jesus, that sort of thing. But now he wants to, in good legal fashion, point to the exact wording of the will. <laughs> this is this is remarkable, Pastor Heidi. This is one of my favorite sections in the scriptures when it comes to just the attention to detail and the argument that Paul makes is is so simple, but it's so brilliant in that sense. Right. Just go ahead, take us into it. It's, I just love this. <laughs> well, he, he says what it it does not say, he says, to offsprings. In other words, he says it's not a plural now. Right. I know it, and it really doesn't make that much. It doesn't sound like it might make that much difference to us, but he makes a big deal out of this because he says no, it refers to one and to your offspring, uh, singular, and then he identifies this singular offspring with Christ. You know, and he, basically, like I said, he's pointing to the exact wording of the promise, like to the letter. And saying this is actually what it says. And I think this is kind of remarkable because, you know, this is the exact kind of thing that his opponents would have been doing. You know, we're, we're following the letter. We're doing exactly what it says. And he says, well, if that's the case, here's the letter. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah. It is well, and, the offspring Christ. Go ahead. And just as, you know, as he said, he's going to the letter. What's, what's remarkable to me about it, if I can just kind of maybe push against it a little bit for a moment is that the word offspring, or sometimes you'll see it translated as seed, 
within the context of the promise that's given to Abraham is a what's often called a collective noun. So mm-hmm. it's it's a word that is singular in grammar, but you, you kind of know that it's talking about more than one person. But Paul says, hey, it's singular in grammar, and it's actually talking about a singular person. Now, he's, he's right, but it, again, it's just, it's just one of these mind-blowing moves that Paul makes that I don't know that I would have connected those dots if he hadn't written this in Galatians 3. Yeah, well, he had the Holy Spirit. So. I know. <laughs> I, I know. But it's just it's such a remarkable promise. And I think just do it the, before we get maybe a little more deeper into what Paul is, is arguing with that. Just his way of reading the Old Testament to see Christ in that singular noun is a it's just a brilliant thing. And I think that that should inform the way that we approach the Old Testament. I suppose we need to be careful because as you said, we are not the apostles with the promise of the Holy Spirit inspiring us to write the New Testament. At the same time, we should be looking for Christ in the Old Testament all over the place. And I, I think that's something we can take from Paul here. Oh, sure. I mean, just just reading the Old Testament, you know, if we are if we are sensitive to what is happening, and especially sensitive to, you know, what the implications of what is something is going to do, you know, the, what does this mean for the future kind of thing? Yeah, Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. And we don't even have to try that hard to find him. You know, I think, you know, when Jesus opens the eyes of the disciples so that they they under, they can see him in the the writings of the prophets and stuff like that, we still have that today. You know, yeah, we do have to be cautious because, like you say, we're not inspired. We can make mistakes. However, that doesn't mean that we should be afraid to look for him right. in the Old Testament. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, okay, why now tell us a little more care or more detailed why this matters in this context. Why is it important that the promise given to Abraham was made to offspring, singular, referring to Christ? Mm-hmm. What difference does that make in the context of promises and law? Well, because the the promise, the ultimate promise, is that we will be justified through faith in Jesus. You know, it is through Jesus that we are made right with God. If it is offsprings, uh, plural, then we might say, well, we're all kind of made right with God on our own. You know, it could be understood then in terms of the law again, you know, that our own efforts actually bring us closer to God. But by emphasizing that it is to the offspring, singular, um, that who is Christ, that emphasizes that from the very beginning, this has always been about Jesus. And that's what the Jews did not see. And that's what the people in uh, the Christians in Galatia were being tricked into not seeing, you know, thinking that it was more about what we did and about our own efforts. No, this has always been about Jesus. And that's like he says later in the passage until, you know, until Christ came or, you know, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of faith or sons of God through faith and so forth. You know, it is through Jesus that this all happens. So with this one offspring, this is where justification, this is where righteousness will be given in the one offspring and in him alone. And so this establishes the terms of the will that God has ratified through Abraham to Abraham. 
And that's not going to be changed. That can't be changed. That's the human example that he's given. So with that in place, that this is a promise that has been made, here are the terms. Paul then starts to turn to the law and just begins with the simple fact that that's not going to annul what God did 430 years prior. So so take us into, as Paul begins to turn now more to the law mm-hmm. and what it didn't do, what it does do, help us into his initial argument there in verse 17 and following. Yeah. So now that he's established what he wants to say, he needs to answer an objection, which is, well, then why have the law at all? You know, because it is clear that God established the law at Mount Sinai through Moses. Was that all pointless then? Was there no reason for it? No, he says there is a reason for it. However, the reason for it is not to change the terms of the promise with Abraham. You know, that, so it does not annul, it does not do away with everything that God said to Abraham. That's all still in force. Because if, if what brings us to God is something that comes through the law, if inheritance comes by law, verse 18, it no longer comes by promise, he says. It's no longer something that comes by faith, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So in other words, like I said, whatever what the law is doing, and he'll get into why, you know, why we have it at all, it is not to do away with the the original promise, which is what the Jews and the the Judaizing Greeks or, or Judaizing um, Galatians were doing. That doesn't go away. Abraham is the one where the promise was made. That's still in force. And so now we have to deal with, well, why the law at all? So within verses 17 and 18, then, it, it seems mm-hmm. to me that he's establishing there's, we've got two different genres of, of words from God here. We've got promises that were made to Abraham Mm-hmm. And we've got law that was given through Moses. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it, which is maybe especially for Lutherans, that's something, well, of course, there's there's the two different words from God. There's law, there's gospel, and, and why why is this important? But Paul spends, I think, two verses just establishing, hey, these are two different things. And so the the latter one, the one given 430 years later, the law, isn't going to annul the promise because they're doing two different things. So maybe just before we leave these verses behind and go more specifically into what the law is, as Paul describes it, and the job that it does, just a reminder, remind us of the distinction between these two types of words from God, the promises that he, he gave to Abraham and the laws that he gave through Moses. Well, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. So that would be, of course, that... The law is something that God gives to us in order to, I mean, to show his will, but it also shows that we have not kept that will. But the gospel is something that God gives to us as a way of saying that we are made right with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, you know, once we are made right, then we are set back in the way that God would have us go. That's something we do want to emphasize as well. Uh, but that is something that happens only because of what Jesus has done for us. Yeah, yeah. So, so then, if the inheritance comes by the law, as Paul says, if you're going to to be made, if you're going to receive the gift of God by what you do according to this law, mm-hmm. then you've nullified the promise, and we've already established that you can't do that from the human example. So that's that's at least the the premise of his argument thus far. Right. And now he's going to to deal more specifically that well, okay. If that's the case, Paul, why then the law? And that's the question he asks in verse 19. Help us to see how he begins to answer it. 
Yeah, so he the he says the primary reason why the law was given was because of transgressions, which I think is an interesting way of putting it. Um, basically, and he's going to go on to explain this in more detail, uh, the law was put in place as a kind of temporary injunction, um, something that God set in place as a way of leading his people in the way that they should go. Uh, they needed to have a direction. They needed to know where they were supposed to go. And that's why God put it in place. And especially because um, the people had it, I mean, all people, us included, had a tendency to go away from what God wants them to do. Mm. So the, the faith, according to, as Paul puts it, has not yet come. In other words, Jesus has not yet come. So the promise of Abraham has not yet been fulfilled. We need something to kind of guide us until the coming of faith, until the coming of Christ. That is the purpose of the law. Okay. And the, the thing that he, he's going to emphasize later, and I mean, we see this a little bit already, but especially later, is that he's going to compare this time between Abraham and the coming of Christ to childhood and what that means for you know being guided and kind of moving forward kind of thing but the emphasis again is that we need this kind of guide to bring us from point a to point b and that is the purpose of the law so when he says it's because of transgressions mm -hmm. the thought would be so i mean 430 years after god gave the promise to abraham the people of israel would just wander so far away mm -hmm. that without in their transgressions that without some kind of a guardian a guide we'll get into that language in a bit they would wander so far that the the promise would be lost that's kind of the the idea here with because of transgressions yeah i think so um because if if god's people go entirely astray which i mean they did on multiple occasions <laughs> but that's beside the point um but if they were to go so completely away from God that God has basically no choice but to cast them off, where is the where is Christ going to come then? So in other words, if, if we're going to keep the promise made to Abraham, we have to have something in place to kind of guide them, to kind of force them along the right way until the coming of Christ when the terms of the original will would be fulfilled. So how does that, I mean, that's the, the way we're, we're talking here in terms of the law's purpose, I guess, historically. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a little bit different than the way that we think about the law's purpose theologically, which you brought out earlier, that the law, the primary purpose is to show us our sin. How, how does that factor into this, that it's, it's there because of transgressions? How does the, the, sh the theological function of the law to show us our sin factor into what, what you're saying? Well, I mean... If we want to think of it in terms of, you know, how does it continue to apply to us today, not just historically, I think Paul is focusing largely historically here, but that's beside the point. Um, the law is still something which points us towards Christ, right? It is something that, I mean, it shows us the will of God. It shows us what God would have us do, you know, and if we talk about, of course, you know, what we call the third use of the law, it shows us what God delights in. But it is also something which points us back to Christ because it shows how we have not kept these things, how we have not done these things. 
And therefore, we go back to the promise, we go back to Christ so that we see that everything that we do comes from him. Even our keeping of the law as Christians, which we do, is something that we can do only because of Jesus. Right. Yeah. Okay. So for, for us today who are past that historical moment in time that Paul's been talking about, mm-hmm. the law then, and we, I guess we'll get into this a little bit more when we get to the guardian language in a couple of verses, mm-hmm. but the law is there because of transgressions in the sense to, to show us over and over again all of those transgressions from which we cannot save ourselves until Christ comes to us in the gospel and brings salvation in that way, which is the only way that salvation will come. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right, so then we get to some really interesting things here, Pastor Heidi, as Paul continues. So we've got that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What does that mean? (laughs) Just put it out there. What does that mean? Give us the answer. I think that it means um, Paul is saying, therefore, it is inferior in that sense, too. Because the promise was made to Abraham directly. No intermediary, nobody in between. God spoke to Abraham, put it in place. The law, on the other hand, was put in place not only through angels, which is what he says here. You know, the, uh, He's thinking in terms of the angels brought the word of God to Moses kind of a thing. But there's also an in-between. There's an intermediary who is Moses. So because there is this step in between God and his people, which is Moses, therefore it is a lesser thing than the promise made to Abraham where there was nobody in between. Hmm. Maybe, maybe something like this, where maybe it's a, along the same lines as what the writer of Hebrews, which you probably, you probably think that's Paul anyways. It is so, Paul. Okay, so <laughs> Paul in, in Hebrews chapter 1 at the very beginning, where he says, you know, long ago and many times in, in many ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Mm-hmm. So with the with the prophets, you know, and Moses being prophet number one in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you have you have that extra intermediary in there. With Jesus, he is the intermediary you need ultimately. Right. And that makes him superior in that set in that set. so something like that going on here too you think yeah no I, th- I think so I mean it would be like if I if I had a message brought to me through someone yes it's still the message from that other person but you know there's something that's lacking as uh, rather than if that person themselves came and told me directly you know what I mean Sure. Okay. Okay. So, so Paul's again by bringing this up is mm-hmm. making the case that the promise is doing something different. The promise is giving something that the law cannot give. Mm-hmm. He's going to keep making that case in this text, but we do need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Zelwyn Heidi this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. 
Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 12th. We're studying Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were looking at what Paul says about the law being put in place through angels by an intermediary. God has done something better with that in his promise. He has given that directly through his son, Jesus Christ, our ultimate mediator. Now, Paul in verse 20 then says, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, again, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I, again, I think this is kind of the same idea that if we have an intermediary, there's somebody in between, we have an, an, a third party, so to speak, um, but God is ultimately one in the sense that he doesn't need an intermediary, and therefore when we you know, when we come to the original promise, the promise made to Abraham, that shows that this is what God really intends. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing in between. There's no third party involved. This is the will of God, which is to save us through Jesus Christ. Mm. I yeah. think. Nope. Well, and so I, I was, I was, as I was reading that this morning, the an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Again, thinking about the role of Jesus as an intermediary, as a mediator, as the scriptures speak of him, mm -hmm. is, is there some... Is, and I suppose Trinitarian theology is all over the scriptures because God is triune. But right. is, this a, is there some Trinitarian theology in the background of this verse? Well, I think if we're going to talk about Christ as the, mediate, as the mediator, um, we're kind of talking about a little bit of a different thing. Okay. Because intermediary here is the sense that, you know, how is God's will put into place? That's really, that's really Paul's point here. Whereas when we're talking about Christ as a mediator, as our mediator between us and the Father, uh, we're talking about, you know, who our we're talking about access to God. You know, so it's a little bit, I don't know, gotcha. I think it's a little different. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, I've got. I maybe have some different verses on my mind right now from from things that I've been reading and studying here that's in the fair. congregation. In terms of Jesus as the, I'm thinking about the, the text from Deuteronomy 18, mm -hmm. where the the Lord through Moses talks about that experience at Mount Sinai, where they said, "Don't talk to us directly," mm -hmm. and the Lord says, "It's good. You need a mediator." And so, but I think I think you're probably right. Paul's doing something different here than the Lord was talking with Moses. So I, I just think I have different texts on my on my brain, and I'm I'm connecting them where maybe I don't need to be doing that. Well, maybe I'm just you know who knows what I'm saying. So <laughs> no, no, I, I think I think you're I think it's I think it's good. I think, I think that the point that you're making that that Paul's getting at here is he's showing the superiority to the gospel, the promises of God, and what it's doing compared to the law, mm -hmm. and why then, I mean, as we talked about, what, in 2 Corinthians, that the law ends up passing away, it serves its purpose, and now the gospel reigns supreme. I think those those things are very much related, and, and in Paul's mind as he talks here about the purpose of the law and how the gospel 
has superseded, has fulfilled, come, come and now done what God has intended in bringing righteousness that way, not mm-hmm. through the law. Mm-hmm. So he continues his, his argument then in verse 21, asking another question, perhaps another objection he's anticipating. Mm-hmm. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. How does he back that answer up? Yeah, and I really do want to emphasize the certainly not here. You know, Paul is not saying through any of this that the law is somehow evil, that the law is somehow something that has no purpose whatsoever. That is not his point. Um, Unfortunately, I think sometimes we can come away with that impression. His point is that if the law had, and basically that they're doing different things, that's his point. And that is, if the law had been given that could give life, in other words, if a law was given that could bring us to God, if the law was given that would save us, that would give us the inheritance, then righteousness would be that way. Absolutely. That would be how we would be saved. However, that's not what happened. And that's what Paul has been emphasizing. The promise did not come through the law. The promise came to Abraham and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All right, so the, the law is not bad. The law is doing something different. It's not giving life. That's not where righteousness comes. Instead, in verse 22, Paul says, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This language of, of prison and captivity in the next verse, uh, those, I think, are, are part of the reason we we might read these verses and think negatively of the law. The language mm-hmm. of guardian is a little a little more neutral, a little more positive in, in English. Mm-hmm. But as you said, he's not saying law bad, even though he uses some perhaps strong language. What's he saying about Scripture imprisoning everything under sin here? Yeah, and I think I think the imprisoning and the guardianship is something is language that is looking forward to how he's going to talk in the next section. Yeah, you know, because his his main emphasis in starting in chapter four is going to be this difference between the son and the slave. Right. That is his primary focus here. And I know that, you know, slavery language is something we struggle with too. It's very much a part of Paul's argument here. We have to kind of just get over it. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. So Sure. Sure. Well that's okay. But so so tell us what's his point then in saying scripture imprisoned everything under sin. What is that what does that mean? His point is that um, the scripture has done something here by basically setting a very strict boundary that is now has now been put in place and that's the idea of this guardianship too which we'll get to and this strict boundary has been put in place so that we would get from point a to point b which is kind of my original my original point here um that by imprisoning everything under sin by basically um by basically showing that you know this is this is um how do you want to say that this is what you know what is happening here that god has put everything so that we are we show you know how we have not how we have not yet got to christ i'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this here sure um that by doing that it really emphasizes that once christ comes that that imprisonment has been released right right that we have been set free and so now that the fullness has come the old has passed away. And so it is, it, again, it is that language of superior, you know, the law passing away before the gospel, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. So Scripture imprisons everything under the under sin 
so that then when the promise by faith comes, that is given to those who believe. Again, not to those who work, but to those who believe. Now, before faith came, and I think with that language, before faith came, we should probably understand faith, the the object of faith, rather than Mm -hmm. faith, because we know Abraham was saved by faith. He was made righteous through the gift of faith. So it's not that the, the people of the Old Testament didn't have faith, they did, but rather where it says before faith came, I, I think he's got to mean before the object of our faith came, namely Christ. Well, is, that, is that right? If you look at the, the following verse, he kind of says pretty much exactly the same thing, just a little bit different wording. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it's the same idea. So faith here has to mean Christ. Before the coming of Christ... We were held captive under the law, is what he's saying. Yeah. Okay, so talk about this captivity that was under the law before Christ came. Well, I think I think the best way to understand the captivity is to look at verse 24, because he kind of explains it a little bit more there. That's he, very Hebraic of him. It is. It's extremely. <laughs> um, but it's it, this idea of guardianship, I think, is, is crucial to understanding this captivity. And of course, guardianship is going to look forward to, again, the following chapter, chapter four, where he talks about the difference between a child and a slave. Um, Basically, guardianship in this sense is a, I mean, the word that we have translated as guardian is literally a pedagogue in the Greek, right? And a pedagogue was a, a slave who was appointed for the sole purpose of bringing a child from the house to the school that was he was he was he was a guardian he was supposed to watch over the child he was supposed to make sure nothing happened to him he was even also supposed to make sure that the child was doing what he was supposed to do he had the authority at least to discipline in that sense make sure the child isn't goofing off sort of thing so he is a servant of the legitimate heir of the house okay And so the point here is that the law is serving the same purpose. The law is get put in place for the sake of the child so that the child would be brought to the place where they are supposed to go, which is Christ. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the the law's job then, and I think this is the way you talked earlier, to get you to from point A to point B safely so to to get you to the goal mm-hmm. without usurping the place and again to, to go back all the way to the example that he gives if <clears throat> if the law comes along and annuls the promise then the law hasn't done the job that it was given to do which is to get you from then the promise is made to the fulfillment of the promise mm-hmm. which is the offspring singular christ mm-hmm. and that's the whole job of the law is to get you from that beginning to the end without I mean, delivering you safely. If, if discipline is needed along the way, then the law is going to do that. But it's not there to take the, the place of the promise or to annul the promise. It's to get you to the promise when the promise is fulfilled. Yeah, because when the child comes into his own, when he's reached his majority, when he's grown up, however you want to word it, then the pedagogue, the guardian there's no more need, right? The grown man, the the child who has grown into a man who now takes possession of the inheritance has no more need for 
this kind of uh, direction, this kind of guardianship, this kind of discipline. Right. He has now become what he's supposed to be. Therefore, the purpose of that guardian has come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, that's really the, the argument that Paul's going to develop more fully when we get to chapter four. Mm-hmm. And he, he keeps using this language and develops that a lot more fully, but he's, he's laying the foundation here. Okay. So the, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we m- might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So verse 25, you, you pretty well covered for us, Pastor Heidi. Mm-hmm. So now that we are no longer under the guardianship of the law, the first thing that that means is in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Talk to us about that blessing of faith in Christ. Yeah, uh, that in Christ Jesus, by faith, we have been made heirs of God. That the, the promises that were made to Abraham that uh, were set in place by that will, the terms of that promise have now come into force through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's really the kind of the main argument he's been building towards. That's everything he's been saying up to this point. He now lays it out very clearly. If we want to be a son of Abraham, believe in Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's not by what you do. It is by Jesus and Jesus alone. Although I think it is worthwhile pointing out here, too, something that we should hold on to. Um, faith makes us sons. We should not abandon that language or try to neutralize it into something like uh, just children. Sure. Faith makes... Tell us why. Yeah. Because a son, and we got to think in terms of what Paul is arguing here, a son is the one who inherits, right? The son is the one who actually receives the inheritance of the father. Um, so that's that's the the imagery that he's borrowing here. So if we if we try to neutralize that, then we we lose a lot of the force of the image here. Sure. Um, sure. We and and in that sense, we are also made one with Christ. We become like Christ. Christ is not just a child of God. Christ is the Son of God. We can't abandon this language in in the the fear of offending someone. Sure. Sure. And I think you know to. You're exactly right within this context. It is important that you and I and all who are Christians are sons of God and not simply children of God. There are places in the scriptures that refer to us as God's children. And so it's not like that language is somehow wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just that in this context, there's no need to weaken it or change it because he's making a very specific point by saying you are sons of God. That language is very significant to the argument that he's making, so we shouldn't change it for fear of offending. He's not saying something, he's saying what he is saying, right. and it's good. <laughs> and there's no need to change the language for fear of offending. <coughs> we need to let his argument stand, and it becomes all the more comforting and all the stronger if we allow him simply to speak as he does, that in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. He then continues... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here we have mm-hmm. baptismal language and the language of clothing. Take us into verse 27. Yeah, this is what Paul likes to do. He kind of takes his idea and then he uses about 15 different pictures to explain it. Fantastic. All within the about 13 verses. So um, his, his point here is that 
you have become sons of God through faith. You are now belong to Jesus. And basically he's saying, how do we become sons? And that is, we were baptized into Christ. And because we were baptized, we have now put on Christ. We have now been clothed with him. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, this language of clothing is also important because it's not just like, oh, I'm just wearing Jesus. No, this, this is clothing that is making us like Jesus. It, it changes who we are, right? Baptism is not just a something that happens to us. It, it transforms us. It makes us new. It makes us sons of God. And that, of course, we'll get into the following verse, which we do need to unpack a little bit more at length. But, I mean, that really is the point, is that when we put on Christ, we become like Christ in everything. We have been made sons. We have, you know, the promises are ours. We are now Abraham's offspring. I mean, that's the last verse, right? If you're Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And all of this happens because of what God has done for you. Yeah, yeah. And it's been given in baptism in which you do put on Christ. Something real happens there. This language of clothing, Paul picks up elsewhere. I think it's Ephesians 4 where he talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man and the way that that actually does then bear fruit in the way that Christians live. All of this is is involved here, but it comes through faith. It comes not through law. It comes through faith, through mm-hmm. gift. And notice that baptism is a part of, of gift of God. So what a what a wonderful passage about baptism to hold on to it as a part of the gospel, as a part of the gift. It's not something that I do in obedience to God to earn something from him, but it is something that he gives to me in order to make me righteous as Christ is righteous. So what a wonderful passage about baptism. Now, as you said, we need to unpack verse 28 as well. And this is the, the verse that I was thinking about earlier when I said there are verses within this this passage that are maybe ripe for some misunderstanding and abuse. Right. This is one that, that sometimes can function that way. Right. When taken correctly, it's, again, a, a verse of wonderful comfort. So Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? What isn't he saying, Pastor Heidi? Okay, so I think, I think it's best to start with what he is saying, just so that we understand kind of the the, the connection to the broader argument here. And that, you know, we have been made sons of God through faith. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, we are being made like Jesus. And in the sense that um, now that we, now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, it is through him that we are made righteous. Who we are in ourselves is not important. It is because of what Jesus has done for us that makes us heirs of Abraham. And his point here then is that there is the all these worldly distinctions when it comes to salvation don't matter, right? It doesn't matter if I'm a Jew. It doesn't matter if I'm Greek. It doesn't matter if I'm slave. It doesn't matter if I'm free. It doesn't matter if I'm male. It doesn't matter if I'm female. When I am in Jesus Christ, I am an heir of Abraham. I have salvation. I think that's the most. I think that's the simplest way of making his point here. Would you agree? Yes, I think so. I think so. And that's and again, that's that's a beautiful comfort that no matter uh, again what what my background is, no matter what my occupation is, all of those things are set aside in the promises that God makes. And he saves me with, with all of the, whatever that may be for me, 
he saves me and unites me to himself and then to his church. And that's that's glorious good news that that the church is composed of of all these people and together we are all saved in the same way through the promises that God has made for us in Christ which we believe through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is wonderful news. Now this verse is sometimes abused, Pastor Heidi, and and particularly I'll, I'll let you if you've got others in <laughs> mind, but I I know that particularly there are those who would advocate for women's ordination that like to point to right. this verse as right. saying, well look, there's neither male nor female, so it's okay for women to be pastors. We've already talked about what Paul is saying. Tell us why that's not a part of what he's saying. And and as you need to elaborate, that's just the one that I know comes to mind right, right away. Right. But as you need to elaborate, help us to what's he not saying? Why is that out of bounds for this verse? Well, before we get to that, I do want to add one more thing. Please. Um, I think the a, a reason for this emphasis too of being equal in salvation, that you know, that's what Paul is saying here, is because the law as it stood there was a difference between things, right? Um, so like, for example, circumcision, part of the, the, the law, part of the old, the old yeah. covenant. Um, that was something which was applied to sons, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, for that reason, a daughter was not a participant in that covenant in the same way, right? She just couldn't be. And... But now that Christ has come, in terms of salvation, they are equal. An equal share, an equal inheritance within the covenant. Okay? That's something that I do want to emphasize. That's helpful. That's helpful. Okay? But now, where I think that this goes wrong, or the application of this that goes wrong, I should say, is that people try to take the this principle that Paul is setting out here, that we are equal in salvation under Christ, and they try to apply it to the world, right? They're taking this idea and they're applying it to something where it doesn't belong. Paul is not saying in this passage that Jew uh, Jewishness or Greekness disappears. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that slavery or being freeborn disappears, or that being male and female disappears. These things are good. These things are part of God's creation. Um, this is what he has established for the world, and therefore they still are in force in terms of the world, in terms of who we are created to be. Um, it is only in terms of salvation that these things have no meaning. Right? Sure. And I think just as evidence of that, you know, you just look at the rest of Paul's epistles, and he's got more than one that includes something like a table of duties, in which he, he outlines, at least for two of the categories, you know, what what is it, what is the relationship of a, a master and a slave look like? Mm -hmm. What does the relationship of a husband and a wife look like? And their responsibilities to each other are, are different. And so, I mean, just those things come from the same author. So he, those things can go together mm -hmm. in the way that you're saying. So uh, what Paul says here doesn't undo the things that he says elsewhere that maybe we don't like. We don't get to right. play right. fast and loose, pick and choose what I like from Paul right. and from the scriptures like that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that God has made us male and female is a good thing. And he has established certain things for what it means to be male and female. Those things are still in force. They are part of God's good creation. 
You could even argue that it is that you know keeping these things is part of what it means to follow after the will of God, right? You know what is what is God's will for me being a husband, for example, or for me being a father? Those things don't disappear just because I believe in Jesus, right? You know, yep. I am a Christian father, I am a Christian husband, and that's going to inform how I live. Um, what? But the the point here is that. It is not because of those things that I am saved, but rather that it is because of Jesus. You know, we are all yeah. one in Christ Jesus. So, I mean, to get to your point about like women's ordination, for example, you know, we can't just say that, oh, well, this shows that we can do whatever we want. No, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point. Yeah. I mean, Paul would never say anything like that. You know, his when it comes to uh, order, order, order it within the congregations, I mean, he makes his points very, very clear about what he intends for pastors, about what God intends, you know, in places like Timothy and Titus and that sort of thing. You know, the scriptures are clear about these things. It's only when we want to make them unclear that they become unclear. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's not good when we make things unclear that God has spoken clearly. So what he says elsewhere concerning the way that we behave in matters of employment, the way that we behave in matters of marriage, as as people living within his creation, those things are, are very much still in Paul's mind, but none of those things are what save. What saves is faith in Christ, and he saves by through faith, regardless of Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, it all comes through promise. That is how salvation, righteousness come to you and to me. With about a minute left here, Pastor Heidi, we've already talked a little bit about verse 29. Hit any more highlights that you want to and help us to wrap things up today. Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, we've kind of been emphasizing this throughout the whole section, but I think it's worth reiterating, you know, Paul's point here, as in all of Galatians, is that our salvation comes through Christ. And it is only in Christ that we become heirs of, of Abraham, that we become heirs of the promise. We are made the sons of God through what the Son of God has done for us in making us his own. So we don't want to hold on to anything else. We don't want to turn to our works. We don't want to turn to you know anything that we might that might take us away from Jesus. We need to focus on him and him alone, because he alone is our righteousness. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. The law has done its job. It has been the guardian that has brought us from the promise to fulfillment, which has been given in Christ. That is how you are saved. You are made righteous. You are made a son of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians chapter 3, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. 
You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to KFUO.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to KFUO.org slash store. 